0: great to see our young people read God's Word, isn't it? Amen. Amen. We begin Matthew today. We've been doing it already in our Bible classes, and we're also going to be preaching through it on Sunday morning, and uh, sometimes on Sunday nights as well. And I'm going to invite you to get your Bible out. In fact, as we begin the study of the life of Jesus, let's hold our Bibles up. Now, I know many of you will be holding up your phones because you're going to hold up your smartphone. Let's open these Bibles up to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Here I am talking about Matthew, and I'm asking you to open your Bible up to, uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. But we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 over the next couple of weeks. And uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is going to help us get our mind around what Matthew is, is talking about. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 5. And before we read, let's ask God to bless us. Father, we as a church have dedicated ourselves to to be completely immersed in the inspired writings that teach us about your son Jesus, in particular the Gospel of Matthew. We're thankful for this 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 book, this gospel. We are thankful for the stories and for the teachings and and for the doctrine and 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 for the commandments and for the example that we find in the pages of this book. And it's our prayer, Father, that in, in our, every, our, our daily readings that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear so that these words make an impact upon us and they, they sweep through our life with all of these truths and doctrines and examples and parables and stories in such a way, Father, that we fall more in love with Him. And our worship is increased and, and our discipleship is deepened because of the picture that, that Matthew paints of, of Jesus. And so bless us this morning, Father, as we think about the Incarnation, and and, and bless us, Father, with a greater understanding of how that impacts our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. This writer says, It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the Son of Man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, He says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity, so that by His death, He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels He helps, But Abraham's descendants, for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This, too, is God's Word. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is a, a, a commentary of sorts that looks back to the text that Connor read to us out of Matthew chapter 1 and helps us to make sense of what this Incarnation is all about. You see, the Incarnation is the beginning fact of all of these, of, of all of these Gospels, that, 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 uh, that there was something tremendously important and unique that was taking place in history. Now, to get our mind around it, we're going to ask a series of questions this morning. The first one is this. What is the Incarnation? What is the Incarnation? Now, to to help us get our mind around it, what we're going to do is kind of do a quick review of the first couple of verses of the text out of Hebrews chapter 2 that I just read. And and that's going to help us to understand what that incarnation is. Now, verse 7, which is up here on the screen, is a quote out of Psalm chapter 8. And what it's saying, what the Hebrew writer is saying, is that at creation, we as human beings, we as God's human creatures, had everything under our feet. Everything was subject to us which meant that, you know, it was a perfect world in every respect. There was, there was a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, of uh, cooperation between human beings and, and, and the world. Nature was our servant. The world was working cooperatively with humans in, in every way. There was no disease, there was no death, there were no natural disasters. And then we get to verse 8, and we find one of the greatest, we encounter one of the greatest understatements in all of the Bible. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. Now in verse 7, it says that everything, human beings in creation, everything was subject to to humans. And then in verse 8, all of that has changed. What has happened? Well, that has happened because of the fall, the turning our back and turning away from God. And now the world is full of destruction. The world is full of death. Nature is not cooperating with us. We are at odds with one another. But then verse 9, which is the great turning point. And here is where Christ comes into the picture. The writer says, but now we see Jesus. And note that one of the things that he says in that verse about Jesus, same thing that said about us. He was made a little bit lower than the angels. Christ... According to the Hebrew writer and according to the Gospels, Christ became human. But not only that, as a human, He tasted death. But not only that, He tasted death for us. Why? So that by God's grace, verse 9, we might be adopted as sons of God, not just sons of, by creation, but sons by salvation, verse 10 in order to emancipate us from the fear of death and the fear of our slavery to Satan, verses 14 through 16. Now, if you've been listening very carefully, both to the reading and to what I've been saying about verses 7, 8, and 9, what you understand is that this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Sin came into the world, changed everything. Christ came into the world and changed it back. He's in the process of changing it into the way that it's always supposed to be. But then beginning in verse 10 and going to the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews drills down even more deeply into the humanity of Jesus in the incarnation. In verse 11, He is not afraid to identify with us. That is, He gets involved with us. He's not afraid to call us His brothers. In verse 14, Jesus takes on flesh and blood, that there's a a physicality about Him, that He wasn't just spirit, He was also a physical body. Now... That is basically the definition of what the Incarnation is all about. By definition, the Incarnation is God has become flesh. He is no longer just spirit. He has the experience of the flesh as well. Now, why all of this this emphasis in the Gospels and in the book of Hebrews and Colossians chapter 1 for that, that matter, Why all this emphasis on the Incarnation? The answer is simply this. He understands and identifies with us. If there's nothing else, you get out of the message this morning. The Incarnation means that Jesus completely identifies and understands every good moment and bad moment, every mountaintop and every valley, every lit up place and every dark place that our hearts, minds and souls and our bodies visit in this life. He understands that. Jesus gets us. And when we go to Him, there is a connection, a real connection. And that's why this is so unique, this invisible becoming the visible. It is, it is the, 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 the historical universe sundering event in all of history. That's what the incarnation is. It's God becoming flesh and, and being able to identify with us and understand us. Now, how does that impact us? So that's the second question. How does God becoming flesh, that incarnation, impact us? Well, the first is what I've been saying just over the last two minutes or so. God gets involved with us. God gets involved with us, although it costs Him dearly. Now, those of you who uh, were of a certain age in the 1960s, 1964 uh, specifically, remember this event. You remember there was a a murder that happened in Queens uh, late one night a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese was, was going home to her apartment and she was stabbed to death in, in this alley surrounded by all of these high-rises that were just filled with people. And now it's troubling enough that this woman was murdered. But what made it even more troubling was that there were all kinds of people. There were hundreds of people that heard her crying for help as she was being stabbed multiple times to death. And it was so troubling that there were some sociologists and, and other types of, of uh PhDs that did a sociological study, and they begin to ask these people, did you hear the cries? Yes. Why didn't you respond? And the response was, for me to become involved meant that I was going to become vulnerable. And if I became vulnerable, then what was happening to her might happen to me. That's why I didn't go down from my, my apartment down to the street where she was being killed. And it, they took it even a step further. How come you didn't call it in? I mean, you had phones back in the 1960s in New York City. Why didn't you call it in? They said, well, even if I called it in, if somehow that murderer found out that it was me that called it in that led to his arrest and his friends or he might have some kind of connection that would be able to get back at me, I did not want to get involved in any shape or fashion. If I went down there, I might get stabbed. If I called it in and he discovered it, I might get hurt. There was a loss of safety in their mind sociologically that was associated with getting involved, that loss of safety. People heard the cries, but they didn't come to the rescue. Now one of the things that you read in the Bible over and over again is that God hears the cries of His people. Something bad is taking place, the people cry up, and God responds somehow. Even at the very first book of the Bible, about the fourth or fifth chapter, you have... Uh, the, the murder of Cain, uh, killing Abel. And Abel is dead. And God says to Cain, the blood of your brother Christ up to me from the ground. And God steps in and punishes Cain. And then in the very next book, in Exodus, you have the people who have been enslaved for, for hundreds of years, over 400 years. And their 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 burdens are great. And they're thinking about the promises of God and, and where they're really supposed to be in the world. And they cry out to God, and God it saves them from their enslavement to Egypt. And then they they go into the promised land and you've got that really dark part of their history in Judges where the enemies of God sort of come down and pounce upon God's people from time to time because they're being unfaithful and the people cry up to God. And what is it that God does? He saves His people. Now the incarnation is the ultimate example of what God has been doing throughout all of history of hearing the cries of the people and coming down and doing something about it. It's not just He became flesh, but that He became flesh and got involved with us. Now think of it in terms of verse 11, the end of verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers. By calling them brothers, it means there's some kind of a relationship. There's some kind of involvement there. You just don't call anybody brother and mean it. There's an involvement there. When when Jesus became flesh, it meant that He became like us and He became vulnerable and He became killable. And He was killed. An involvement in God's human project made Jesus vulnerable to the extent that He was pierced to death. But that impacts us in a second way too. Not only do we understand that God made Himself vulnerable in becoming Jesus, but that Jesus was able to face and triumph through suffering. Every piece of suffering that you and I have ever known. Look at verse 11 and verse 17. There at the end, He says, He should make the author of their salvation perfect through what, church? Through what? Suffering. Suffering. Then drop down to verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. What that Hebrew writer is telling us is that Jesus has been through every inch, through all of the drama that we face in this life and more. And he comes to us as a great high priest. And he comes through everything that we've been through, and he has triumphed, which makes him a great high priest, and a merciful high priest, and a sympathizing high priest who understands. And we understand how this happens, right? This kind of a blessing that he is our high priest. Let's bring it home to our family here. You know, from time to time, you you know, it seems like uh, more times than not, a, a lot of the times, when I, at the end of the service, and I'm reading these prayer requests, it just seems like there, there's someone who has just discovered that they or a family member might have cancer or has cancer. And they're asking us to pray about that. And they're f- afraid and they're concerned and they don't know what to expect and he asks the entire church to stand with them in doing that. And, and, and some of you do wondrous things. I, you, you pray every day for that person. And some of you take out one of those pink cards, which is a wonderful thing to do, and you write an encouraging note that gets to the office, and the, office, through the post office lands that, that pink card of encouragement in the house of that person. And, and there are some fabulous ways in which you, know, you make a meal and you come by the house and you drop off a meal. You, you give hugs. But then, but then somebody comes by the house and says, I know what you're going through. Because I'm a cancer survivor myself. Or my dad survived cancer. Or my brother. And they say to you, I know the darkness and I know what that depression's all about. I know about that fear. I know what it's like to lay on that table not knowing what the outcome of that surgery is, is, is going to be. The doctrine of the Incarnation Church says that Jesus has been on every table that we've been on. He understands betrayal and He understands that loneliness and He knows what it means to be broke. And He he knows what it means to own only the clothing that you have on your back. And He knows what it means to face death and humiliation and embarrassment and pain. Over the years, you know, we've all heard, People struggling in their faith say, you know, but I prayed about that thing and I prayed it over and over again and I got turned down. Jesus knows what what that's like. That's what happened in Gethsemane in the garden. Christ is in the dust and He's praying with the cross and His death looming in front of Him. And He prays, let this cup pass from me. And the word from heaven was not okay. But the word from heaven was go on and get on with it. Somebody says, you know, it just feels like God has abandoned me, has abandoned our family, has abandoned my life. You know, Christ knows what that's about too, right? Psalm 22, verse 1, is what He cries out when He's on the cross. My God, my God, why have you said it? Forsaken me. God in Christ has been through it all, has been through every darkness. And because He's gone through it too, He can get you through it. The big question is how? How does this incarnation really change us? How does it get us through? Well, look at verse ten. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. I want you to circle on your outline during your Bible someplace that word author. It's a very difficult word to know how to translate. Some of our versions, like the NIV, has the word author. Other versions have the word pioneer. The interesting thing about that word is that when you look at it at some of the other secular ancient writings, it, it, you find from time to time the word associated with Hercules. And we all know Hercules. Hercules was one of the great heroes. And I think that that gives us a slight nudge in a different direction from, from, from pioneer or author. I, the idea has to do more with that of a hero. Now, unfortunately, we live in a time when that word hero is just thrown around so flippantly. I mean, you know, so, uh, some child does his homework. He's a hero. You know, somebody decides that they are going to stop at the stop sign, he's driving heroically. In the ancient world, that's not what that word meant. In the ancient world, the hero was the one that went to bat for the underdog. The hero was the one that fought in the place of somebody else. And sometimes in fighting for somebody else, you became the substitute for that person in their death. Sometimes the hero was the one who suffered death so that another might live. Now we see that in the Bible too, right? In the Old Testament and... and in uh, First Samuel chapter 17, we have that famous story with David and Goliath. And Goliath is the Philistine hero. And they've been yelling at each other from across the, the, the field for a long time, trying to get each other to fight. But nobody really wants to fight. The Philistines have the chariots, which means that they have the Sherman tanks, the panzer tanks of their age. And the, 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 the Israelites are up in the hills and they've got the rocks and they've got things to launch and, and so there's kind of this, this standoff over there in the valley of Elah. And finally, Goliath, who is the hero, says, you know what, this is what we're going to do today. I'm going to step out and I'm going to defy the God of Israel and I'm going to stand in front of that army and I'm going to challenge them to send a hero out and that way nobody else has to fight because we don't want to anyway. But if I win, then you become our slaves. If you win, then all the Philistines and their hosts will become your slaves. And you know the story. David comes out, representing God's people. The hero was the one who, who stepped out as the substitute for everyone else and fought on their behalf. And in Hebrews chapter 2, this writer tells us that Jesus is the ultimate David. He is the ultimate David, the ultimate hero who fights on our behalf, that ultimate Goliath, which is death and sin and embarrassment and humiliation and depression and frustration. But we ask again, I mean, how does that change us? We go from Hebrews 2 to Hebrews chapter 12. And we find the same word, he says in verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the hero, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, the th- throne of God. There's that word hero again. And, and look at what Jesus did. Jesus fought sin, and he fought temptation. And Jesus went to the cross in faithfulness to God, and he didn't flinch. Why? The Hebrew writer says it's because of this joy that was set before him, that he left heaven and endured the shame and the pain and the death on the cross. Now really, folks, what in the world could be on earth that would be so joy-filled and so precious to Jesus that he was willing to leave that perfect harmony, that perfect... Trinitarian unity with God and with the Spirit and the perfection and the holiness and the majesty of heaven with the multitudes and the myriads of angels that are proclaiming holy, holy, holy and and all of the saints that have gone on before us worshiping Him. What could have possibly brought Him out of heaven to endure all of those things? The answer is you. The answer is simple. It's you, the fallen and the lost. What he did with love in his heart was to become like us and identify with us and get with us and connect with us and engage with us in order for us to be his joy in heaven. And the Bible says that it was because of love. 1985, this movie, Back to the Future. And you know the, the end of the movie, You know Biff Tannen is, is pushing away George McFly, pushing him away from the love of his life, Lorraine, and, and he starts mistreating her. And you know George McFly, he's not very heroic, he's kind of a nerd, he's, he's a passive kind of an individual, has a funny laugh, always being bullied. He never strikes back at all of the abuse that he takes at the hands of the bullies. But Biff has gotten between George and the love of his life. Person that gives him joy, Lorraine. And there's this terrific scene in which the camera f- focuses on George's hand as it clenches into a fist. And he punches Biff and knocks him out, and he becomes Lorraine's hero. And you know the rest of the story. They fall in love and they marry. What Matthew says of the incarnation that is later described in Hebrews chapter 2 what it all means is that telling us that the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, the wonderful Counselor, with love in His heart, went as our hero because there was sin and darkness and evil standing between Him and us. And when you see what He was willing to go through, and when you see what it was that He was willing to endure to make you His joy, And you get that, and you see it, and you begin to really understand what it means for somebody to have died for you in love so that you don't have to die that same death. And that everything that you experience between now and your own physical death is something that He understands. And every every pain, every teardrop, He understands that. He will get you through it, ultimately through that final death into life forever and ever with God. And when you see that, your fist clenches too. And you begin to live that heroic life. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And you know, we struggle, don't we? I mean, we struggle. We struggle with life. We struggle with temptation. We struggle with defeat. We struggle with the. Darkness and depression and all of these kinds of things. The the road is not smooth nor is it straight. There are potholes in it. There are speed bumps. There are ways that that road gets so crooked that we we can never see, at least today, how that's going to get us back on a straight path. How it's going to go straight again. We don't see it. But what the Incarnation tells us, and we'll talk about this even more next week with the word Emmanuel, God with us. We'll talk even more about it next week. But what the Incarnation tells us is that we're never alone and that He will get us through because He Himself went through ahead of us. If that describes you needing the prayers of the church, the encouragement of your brothers and sisters, if you want to be baptized this morning, and and that death, that heroic death that Jesus died on the cross in your place so that you can be saved from your sins, to be baptized in them all washed away, then we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front and we want you to come down and speak to them about these very things as we stand and sing together.